This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the show for and about people who think big. I'm Vas Christodoulou. When it comes to climate change, we all know that time is running out. So why is it so hard to act on that knowledge and take the necessary steps? Jonathan Safran Foa joined us in London to help demystify the psychology of the climate crisis. In this conversation with LBC presenter Matthew Stadlin, the author of Everything is Illuminated and Eating Animals offered us a way out of the crisis, beginning with what we eat and don't eat for breakfast. Welcome to the How To Academy and to this very special event. My name is Matt Stadlin and I present the early morning shows on LBC on Saturday and Sunday mornings. And this is a very special event because we are going to discover, I think, over the course of the next hour and a quarter, whether or not we really can all make a difference in saving the planet. And I want to just gauge the opinions of you first, and you'll get a chance to ask questions later on. So will you stick up your hand if you think we're all doomed? It's quite a lot. We're going to try and convince you, I think, that we're not quite all doomed. Is there anyone in here who would consider themselves a climate change denier? Is there anyone in here who thinks that man-made climate change is not happening? Be very brave. (laughs) I don't think there is so far. This is very good. Are there any Jews in the room? Because it's it's Yom Kippur. We worked out as one and a half Jews backstage that there probably aren't any Jews, because if you were Jewish, you wouldn't be here. We're bad Jews and bad half-Jews because we are here. But we've got a professional duty to save the planet which is, as I say, what we're going to be doing over the next hour and a quarter. Jonathan's very famous because he's written two brilliant novels, and maybe even more than two brilliant novels, but also lots of non-fiction as well, including Eating Animals. And I've heard very good things and very bad things about that. But good things because it's brilliantly written, but bad things because it provides an irrefutable argument as to why we shouldn't be eating meat, which is probably why I haven't read the book yet. (laughs) But I will. This is an excellent book. This is a book I have read, and I'm sure you all get a copy Afterwards, We Are the Weather, Saving the Planet Begins at Breakfast by Jonathan Safran Foa. And we are going to discover just to what extent that is true. So I'll start by asking you some questions. And as I say at the end, I promise you, you'll get a chance to ask the questions that I failed to ask. To what extent do you live the words in the book? Well, the words in the book are not... First of all, thank you. 
for coming. It's a, uh, it's a beautiful room, actually. It's, it's really nice to be here tonight. I'm grateful that you came. So to what extent do I live the words? The words of the book are not exactly an argument. You know, I share a lot of science, and I give my own thoughts about the best ways to engage with the science. I think of the book as being filled with a lot of questions, a lot of doubt, and a lot of wrestling with myself. I am somebody who, like apparently everybody else in this room, acknowledges the science of climate change. There are very, very few people anymore who don't. I'm also somebody who cares about the implications of the science, as I'm sure everybody in this room would say that um, he or she does. And I'm somebody who has historically had a really hard time acting on what I know and care about. So I wanted to give some thought to why I have that problem, why there's this great distance between what I know and care about and what I do. Um, the book is not um, the expression of a conclusion, but I invite, I suppose, a reader into my own journey, into thinking about my own inactivity, how to get over it, if it's even possible to get over it, and what might be a plan to participate in saving the planet rather than um, participating in its destruction. And the centerpiece of the book, arguably, is this sort of dialogue with yourself that you flesh out in words. It's a dialogue with the soul in, in which you flirt with the idea of despair and whether you specifically, but us, therefore, by extension more generally, can actually have an impact. And so let's start almost with the conclusion, can we as individuals, the How-To Academy is all about how we live our lives, how we can make a difference, how we can affect change. Can we as individuals, do you think, start to stop man-made climate change? Well, I mean, it's uncontroversial that we can have an impact. What's controversial is whether we can have enough of an impact and quickly enough. At this point, it's hard to imagine how humankind won't do what is necessary to save the planet. Every arrow is pointing in that direction. I think the question now is, will we, be, will we be able to do it in time? And not every arrow is pointing in that direction. You know, climate change is a ticking time bomb because if we don't solve it, which is, we can talk later about why we end up reverting to these binaries, like save the planet or don't save it, solve it or don't solve it, when in fact it's a lot more complicated than that. But um, in the next, some people say, few years, some people say next year, some people say 10 years, some people say 20 or 50 years, we will enter into um, runaway climate change um, phenomena where there will be positive feedback loops that are impossible to reverse once they've taken effect, like the albedo effect, which is that um, white things reflect sunlight, dark things absorb sunlight. So as white ice melts into dark ocean, the oceans are going to get warmer, which is going to melt the ice that much more quickly, which will become darker ocean, and we can't stop that once it's started. Do I think that individuals can affect how quickly we resolve these issues? Of course we can. You know, if we look at Im images, for example, of the Amazon on fire right now, very, very upsetting. I doubt there's anybody in this room who would look at those images and not be alarmed, disturbed, angry, probably. Probably at Bolsonaro, maybe a little bit at Trump. Um, probably a bit depressed as well. So 91% of that deforestation is because of animal agriculture. 
either to create land for livestock to graze or to create land for crops to feed to livestock. If we had a worldwide boycott of beef, then we would protect the Amazon forever. That worldwide boycott would be the accumulation of individual choices. So that is indisputable. What we could debate is whether that will ever happen. I don't think that will happen. But I do think that like, the degree of our, it's not a think, it's, it's just a, a fact that the, the degree of our response will determine the, the degree of the loss. In, in terms of that impact, in terms of affecting change, and whether it's bottom-up or top-down, to what extent Extinction Rebellion can have an effect? There's a big news story today about whether sufficient pressure would be brought to bear on big companies that use the soybeans that are cutting down, not necessarily the Amazon, but other parts of Brazil, to feed the animals in this country that then go to the big burger chains and so forth and then feed our stomachs. We can come to all that in a moment, but first of all, I want to grapple with this, which is... Why is it that everyone in this room, unless we didn't spot someone up there in the gallery, intellectually understands climate change, knows that it is happening? Why is there a disconnect between that and the fact that we don't really, on some level, believe it? I don't know. You know, each person is different. I can talk about me, and we can talk about you. You know, I'd be very, very curious to hear about your own experiences and what you do in your life um, in response to what you know. I can tell you that... I have known for years, I don't remember exactly when I first learned about climate change, but the fact that I can't even remember when I learned suggests that I've known for quite a while. I've known what's going on, and I've known, I think, maybe at least broadly, what it was that I was doing that was contributing to the problem. There are four things that matter more than all others when it comes to our individual habits, our choices, vis-a-vis -vis the environment, which are flying less, driving less, having fewer children, and eating fewer animal products. Why is it that I could know those things and not be sufficiently motivated? You know, not, I don't think anyone in this room, but I, again, I'll speak for myself, I don't think scientists are lying. You know, I don't think that I know more than scientists. I'm inclined to agree with what they tell me, especially when it's 97% of climate scientists who say the same information. I, I do have a problem believing them. And there's a difference between knowing something and believing it. Knowing it is a an kind of intellectual relationship. Believing it, I think, is a more primitive relationship, visceral, instinctive. Isn't there a problem with a sort of warped symbiosis in our relationship with politicians? Politicians don't do enough because they don't think we care enough. And so they don't feel that sufficient votes are at stake. We don't do enough because we're not being told to do enough. I think you summed it up perfectly. And I like that you said symbiosis. Right, we'll, we'll just leave now. and then yeah. we, and you, you can all... <laughs> Well, you can. I have more to say. But I think that symbiosis is the perfect way to describe it. You know, like people often create this false dichotomy between individual action or bottom-up action and top-down action. And the truth is we influence each other. You know, and you can see it in America now, for example. Um, half a year ago, you couldn't buy a veggie burger in any fast food restaurant. Now, I mean, literally within the last two months, every fast food chain in America carries either an Impossible Burger or a Beyond Burger. It's not because the corporations, the CEOs of these corporations awoke one morning and said, let's be part of the solution and not part of the problem. It's not because the government regulated um, their menus. It's because people asked for them and it became a market force, which was too powerful to ignore. You know, the corporations wanted to make the money that was available to them 
So because of the way that we changed our habits, they changed corporate practices. And because of the way they changed their corporate practices, it makes it much, much easier for us to eat with a kind of environmental consciousness. It makes it much easier if you're at a rest stop while driving from New York to D.C., a position I often find myself in because my family is in D.C., to eat something that isn't meat. So, you know, that kind of virtuous cycle, I think, is the path forward. And then there's the question, well, what do we do as individuals to play our part in that virtuous cycle? Is it raising our voices, you know, at marches? Is it um, taking, withdrawing our money from the worst actors, like industrialized animal agriculture? And I think the answer is we do as much as we, we can. We need to have both. I want to just talk to you, before we talk in a bit more detail about the things that you are actually doing and that I'm not sufficiently doing, or perhaps any of, I want to talk to you about storytelling, because you're a brilliant storyteller, as I said in my introduction, and even though this is a work of non-fiction, it's a story, and there are lots of sub-stories woven in, which are all, I think, making a point, not least the relationship you had with your dying grandmother, for example. And the book is, in a sense, haunted by the lessons and the legacy of the Holocaust and the ways in which your relatives, some of them, managed to escape that awful event. And you use that as an analogy almost for the impending Holocaust of climate change disaster. But storytelling really matters. And one of the things that you say in the book is something that we all know, that the narrative of climate change hasn't excited us yet sufficiently. Extinction Rebellion, arguably, whatever one thinks of them, are beginning to change that, perhaps. And you use the example of Rosa Parks and the fact that she wasn't actually the first person to refuse to move on that bus. Tell us about who the real person was and why storytelling matters in your view. So, you know, as I was taught it in grade school, and it's just a canonical American story, Rosa Parks refused to go to the back of the bus, of a segregated bus, and um, thus initiated kind of civil rights movement in Montgomery, Alabama. And in fact, there was a woman named Claudette Colvin who did exactly the same thing about nine months before. But she was um, quite a bit younger. She was from what was considered a bad family. She was pregnant with the child of a married man, a much older married man. And the NAACP, who were perfectly aware of what she had done, Rosa Parks was perfectly aware of what she had done. Rosa Parks was active in, the, in her local NAACP decided that she wouldn't be the best messenger for this act that they knew was going to take on a huge symbolic importance. And the point that I was making in the book is the ways that we tell our stories matter a lot. They can either emphasize a kind of divisiveness or a kind of camaraderie. They can emphasize sacrifice or they can emphasize inspiration. I did a reading the other day in Toronto, Canada, and about halfway through, an animal rights activist came on the stage and had a poster and started saying, um, you talk about how we should eat less meat, but animals are never to be eaten. Animals are not ours to possess, not ours to kill. And um, people started going, boo, boo, you know. And security came and took her off stage. And I said, it's such a shame, because I bet you that almost everything she was going to say, almost everybody would almost completely agree with. Like the shared values were so much larger than the disagreements, but it's a terrible way of conveying a message, as evidenced by the reaction 
that she got. You know, who in this audience would say that like we want to torture animals? Nobody, obviously. Let's just check. Anyone? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's like a universal human value. You know, you wouldn't say it. Nobody would say it. I wouldn't say it. But if somebody comes up to me and says, "Animals are not meat," is murder. Blah, it almost makes me want to argue with her, you know, despite the fact that I agree with her. So there are ways of telling the story that make us want to argue, and there are ways of telling the story that make us want to agree. But there are also fundamentals of a story that make it more attractive. You say in the book, for example, that if Jesus had died in a bath rather than on the cross, Christianity might not have become what it became. Yeah. I had a line that, unfortunately, my American editor took out, which was imagining people wearing little bathtubs on their, <laughs> their pen necklaces. Um, I'm glad you got a laugh out of your own joke. It would have been unfair if I stole all yes. the laughter. Um, it, it works because there's no Jews in the audience. So everybody's <laughs> like, yes, I recognize that joke. Um, yes, like canonical images work really well in stories. You know, um, Barack Obama was named Barry before he went into politics. Would he still be, have become the president <laughs> if he had been Barry Obama running for president? <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe he would have. I don't know. I have a feeling like Barack made it more likely. Um, Churchill had a cigar. Hitler had a mustache. If you go back, Martin Luther King had his voice, his famous voice. Um, it's not a coincidence that good stories make history. And so climate change is an extremely hard story to tell because it's very vague and feels, can't help but feel quite distant. You know, I, I know what's happening. I know the superstorms are coming. I know the ice sheets are melting. I know the Amazon's burning. I know they're climate refugees. But it just doesn't exactly feel that. It doesn't feel like it's adding up to a story that's moving me. You say the effect of animal produce on our greenhouse gases in total is either 14.5% or 50% or perhaps somewhere likely in between. And you make the, the valid point that given that there is such a degree of uncertainty, even though 14.5% already has a massively negative impact on the environment, given that there is such discrepancy, it's quite hard to convince people to take things seriously if we can't even be sure of the statistics. So to what extent are the statistics holding us back rather than pushing us in the right direction? I would say to no extent at all. I just don't believe anybody who says they're waiting to moderate their meat consumption until the statistics are more precise. Um, it's not true. There are a lot of escape routes that people who don't want to change take. You know, you've heard many, many of them. I have many of them myself. Um, the IPCC, which is the kind of gold standard for climate science now, it's the United Nations body for climate science, has said in its most recent report, so the most contemporary science, they didn't put a number on the greenhouse gas emissions that animal agriculture is responsible for. But what they said is, even if we were to do everything else that we're talking about with regards to fossil fuels, we have no hope of reaching the goals of the Paris Climate Accords unless we dramatically reduce our meat consumption. So it's not a case of whether it's 14.5 or 51. That's the very low range and the very high range. The truth is almost certainly somewhere in between. And um, most climate scientists that I have spoken to put it around a third. What we know for sure, unambiguously and uncontroversially, is that we just can't solve this, the broad problem unless we solve this part of the problem. And give us a sense of just how much more toxic for the environment methane is and carbon dioxide. So our carbon footprint, by definition, is measured in carbon, but methane is far worse, isn't it? So animal agriculture is the leading cause of um, source of methane, um, gas production, and nitrous oxide. 
which are um, 86 and 310 times respectively as powerful as carbon, mm. as a greenhouse gas. And what's meant by powerful is, if you imagine that these greenhouse gases are kind of like a blanket around the Earth that are holding heat in that would otherwise be reflected back out into space, just imagine a blanket that's 86 times as thick and a blanket that's 310 times as thick. And that matters because of this ticking clock that we have to try to shed as much of the heat as quickly as we possibly can before we enter into these positive feedback loops. So if you were a family and you had a budget, as most families do, and you had to make a rent payment or a mortgage payment at the end of the month, and you realized that you're going to cut it pretty close, it would be ridiculous to say, you know, who bought three postage stamps this week? You know, what were you thinking? It's more, more sensible to look at the really big expenditures and to wonder how, if you can get rid of them completely, or if there's any way to you know, dramatically reduce them. We've been laying into Bolsonaro. You have on stage, the British media has, for what's going on in the rainforests in Brazil. But you point out in the book that a lot of the populations of the world that are most vulnerable to climate change, such as the Bangladeshi population, they are actually contributing the smallest carbon footprint. And one of the things that stuck in my mind was how many Earths we would need if everyone on the planet was living like an American? And the yeah. answer to that was, how many Earths? Well, if everybody lived like a Bangladeshi, um, then an Earth the size of Asia would right. be sufficient in terms of the resources necessary to satisfy our needs. Um, if everybody lived like an American, we would need four Earths to satisfy our needs. So one of the tragedies, or ironies as well, of climate change is the people most responsible for it are those who are going to be the last largely to feel it. That's true both in terms of where you live on the globe and even where you live inside of a country. You know, poor people in, inside of countries tend to be the most exposed to extreme weather events. So right now we have a situation where Brits and Americans are chain smoking and Bangladeshis and other people around the world are getting lung cancer. And we are indulging this habit because it's pleasurable and because we're addicted. And um, it's going to be quite a while before we, we feel the same kinds of effects. I don't know whether you'll agree with this, but there are one or two un unhelpful, perhaps, or difficult contradictions in the whole climate science conversation. And, and they include, I can't remember what the phenomenon is called, but they include this effect whereby a lot of the pollution that we are putting out that is killing us and, and, and being responsible in part for thousands and thousands of our deaths, diesel and so forth, is actually creating this sort of layer, a protective layer, that is keeping the world slightly cooler than it would otherwise. And there are other ways as well. For example, the fact that electric cars might not be the panacea we hope or assume they might be, because the electricity in certain parts of the world is coal generated, and that, of course, is a huge pollutant. So I don't know anything about the first. Um, the, the second, it depends, you know, the, uh, the, the value of a hybrid or an electric car depends to a great extent on where you live and what the source of the energy source is, the source of the electricity. But I think we can make a mistake of getting mired in certain kinds of details. I did a reading the other day and at the, in the question and answer session, a young woman stood up and said, you know, you've been talking a lot about meat, but fashion is a real problem. And did you know that a T-shirt has a carbon footprint of da-da-da-da-da, which is the equivalent of eating da-da-da-da-da, and don't you think you should be talking about that? And my reflexive, like, my instinct was to say, you don't really know what you're talking about. You know, 
this is the reality. This is food at this, and, and you're drawing attention to this thing that's over here, and by the way, I'm the guy on the stage, so I'm going to probably win this argument because everybody <laughs> thinks that what I'm saying is true, and you're just a quack. And, and then I thought, why would I do that? And that happens so often, is that the conversation gravitates towards small disagreements rather than this broad consensus, like these broadly shared values, which do not depend on your political affiliation, don't depend on whether you live in a city or in the country or whether you're old or young. So what I said was, I would like to learn more about that. You know, I, I, I actually don't know what you're talking about, um, which risks a kind of vulnerability. I think with climate change, we're, set, we're our, our I, um, forget about we, I get very nervous about feeling vulnerable and being accused of hypocrisy or feeling hypocritical myself or feeling insufficiently educated about it, that we can end up defending ourselves instead of defending the planet. Part of the problem, of course, is that people who do try to make incremental change or small step change are, are, are open to attack from people who are prepared to make no change at all. Piers Morgan, for example. Have you heard of Piers Morgan? Unfortunately, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Piers Morgan, I remember taking on a very high-profile vegan commentator on the telly not so long ago and managed to discover that he was wearing leather shoes and used this as a way of undermining all the efforts he was making in his life, which I thought was kind of grotesquely unfair. But I wonder to what extent you have made changes in your life, for example, giving up dairy before supper time, in order not to be called a hypocrite. So I, I have done that. And you're probably right that some aspect of it is because I don't want to be called a hypocrite. Maybe that's not the worst thing in the world. You know, the future doesn't care if we did the right thing because we were <laughs> a fearing hypocrisy or because our hearts told us it was the right thing. It just doesn't matter. The future would rather have somebody who denies the science of climate change but has a small carbon footprint to somebody who is at every march and a huge advocate and says all the right things and wears nifty T-shirts and makes funny posters and has a huge carbon footprint. So um, I am motivated by many different things. You know, some of them are more noble than others. Some I'm, I, you know, I'm motivated in part by information and science. I'm motivated in part by my personal history, you know, which I write about at length in the book, mm -hmm. and um, the culture that I um, am a continuation of. I'm also motivated by like fear and anxiety. And um, my hope is that I can balance these things in such a way that I'm doing what needs to be done, regardless of my feelings. So let's talk just briefly about fear, because as I say, it sort of stalks the book. And Socrates, I think, as the, the mouthpiece for Plato, said that human beings see as disproportionately large smaller things that are in front of them than far bigger and more significant things that are further away. And clearly that strikes me as what's going on with our inability collectively to do enough to stop climate change. We're tempted by the burger or whatever it is, the convenience of using our car. How do we get frightened by it? And what do you do buy into the idea or reject it that the psychology of fear has a role to play? Because there are some people who believe that we cannot convince people to change through fear, and there are others, I suspect, who think the reverse. Well, there aren't, there's no such thing as people. You know, there are persons, and some people will, some persons will be motivated by fear. Enough or not enough? To what, to what extent can I, fear play a role, do you think? I don't know. I don't know. I think that we need a lot of different 
messengers attempting to tell the story in a lot of different Because there are ways. other ways. I mean, I've just put out a book, which I'm going to be talking about with David Yarrow in a couple of weeks, at the How To Academy, called How To See Birds. And it is a book about my bird-watching journey and trying to find everyday beauty on our doorstep, whether we live in an inner city or in the countryside. And it's illustrated by my photographs. And I want to spread the word about how beautiful nature is. And the hope is that people will thereby care a little bit more. So there are different ways to attack it, but perhaps all of them have a role and are necessary at the same time. It's been the experience in my life. So I have been, I found myself very motivated by scientific papers that I've read. I have found myself very motivated by my relationship with my kids. I have found myself very motivated by Greta Thunberg and the way that she tells the story. I found myself motivated by Extinction Rebellion. Um, I don't find any of those to be, frankly, perfect storytellers or wholly satisfying. But we have to stop waiting for the thing that's going to finally move us sufficiently and instead do the right thing whether or not we are sufficiently moved. If there were a way to take the pressure off of these individual decisions and instead become the kind of people who simply do the right thing because that's the kind of people we are. So an example might be if um, you went to a store right, and there's something that you liked. You wouldn't have to wait for a memory of the social contract to decide not to shoplift. You wouldn't have to envision the shopkeeper's children and grandchildren and realize you know, with a um, bleeding heart that you don't want to take money from their pockets. You don't steal because you're just, that's not the kind of person you are. You just don't steal. So what we need is to become the kind of people who don't steal from the earth and don't steal from the future. The question is, how do we get there from this place? I don't think it's by waiting for the perfect story and I don't think it's by waiting for the right mix of emotions. A couple of weeks ago, um, I met a couple after one of my readings who came up during the signing and asked me to sign their book. They opened it to the title page, which is usually empty, and it was filled with their handwriting. I said, what's this? And they said, um, we're getting married in a couple of months, and we decided tonight that we need to have a plan, because if we don't have a plan, then we're just going to keep doing what we've always done. You know? And I, that really rang familiar to me. Like, yeah, I could say I'm going to fly less next year, I'm going to fly the same amount. I could say I'm going to eat differently. I'm going to eat the same amount, unless I have a codified plan where I'm specific about what I mean. Their plan was eat vegetarian unless served meat at a friend's house, eat vegan two days a week, have no more than two kids, and drive no more than 1,500 kilometers. And instead of just having me sign it, they'd written, they'd had a line at the bottom that said witness, and they had me sign that. <laughs> um, I was charmed by that, and I was moved by that, and I was also really ashamed because... I was the guy on the stage, I was the guy who wrote the book, I was the guy who was signing the book, and I didn't have a plan. And it didn't even occur to me. It just didn't occur to me. The most obvious thing in the world. I know about this, I care about it, and I have no plan. Which is gonna... unfair on yourself, because as I say, you, you plan to give up dairy by dinner time, by the but time that's... you finished, and you also have been a vegetarian for two years, so you're doing better than I am. Um, well, that... I, I don't think that's the right way to put it. You're doing better than I am. Um, the challenge is not to do better than somebody else. The challenge is to live at one's own limits. Tell us about the, the shining and fascinating example of Thanksgiving and why you use that as a metaphor for how we should or you hope that we will become about climate change. Well, 96% of Americans celebrate Thanksgiving and a vastly larger number than vote. I was just giving thought to why it is that there's this collective... I think it's the largest collective action in America. And um, what it is that 
makes that the case. I don't think it's because come the third week of November, people suddenly feel close to their families, are suddenly overwhelmed with a desire to sit at a long table and eat with them. We go to Thanksgiving because we go to Thanksgiving, because it's the kind of people that we are in America. It's habitual. It is on our calendar, and in that sense, it's our plan. You know, It has a date. It has a number. So we already established that everybody in this room acknowledges the science of climate change. We've already established that everybody cares about it. I ask not rhetorically and certainly not judgmentally because I already shared my own position, but does anybody in this room have a plan? And I don't mean I bought a hybrid. I mean, has actually codified, like in this moment of climate crisis, which I know about and care about, this is what I'm going to do, you know, in terms of the things that we know are important. Has anybody ever actually written down a plan? There's a hand over there. So one, one person, two people in the room. Um, for me, as I said, it was one of those things. Until somebody said it, it never occurred to me. I can't understand how that could be the case because it seems so obvious once you've heard it. I went back to my hotel room that night and I wrote a plan on a piece of hotel stationery, which was I won't eat animal products for breakfast and lunch, eat as a vegetarian for dinner. I will not fly for vacations in 2020. I will take no more than three cab rides a week and I will volunteer one day a week, one full day a week for 350.org, which is an environmental organization that Bill McKibben runs and working in the New York City public schools to raise climate awareness and talk to students about the power of their own choices. If I hadn't written it down, I would do the food stuff because I wrote a book about it, but the other things I just wouldn't do. I would say I'm going to fly less and it would mean nothing. I would say I'm going to volunteer and it would mean nothing. I would say I'm going to take fewer cabs and it would mean nothing. It's so different to put into language what it is that you're going to do and then to share it with so other people. So there's 300 people in the room, and if we all tonight came up with a plan, this is sounding evangelical, but seriously, if we did, it's a how-to event. If we all came up with a plan and asked 10 other people to come up with a plan, that becomes 3,000 people. If they ask 10 people, it becomes 30,000 people. If they ask 10 people, it becomes 300,000 people. It's not long until you get to 3 million people. And if each could send a dollar back to me, at the end of, <laughs> um, then we'd solve an awful lot of problems. But this gets, <laughs> this gets us to the question of how change happens. Yeah. Motivation begets change, but as you say in the book, change also begets motivation. Absolutely. Like with Thanksgiving, as I was saying, it's not that we are suddenly <laughs> motivated to see our families, and so we get on the plane or get on the train and go hang out with them. It's that we go hang out with them and then we have the feeling. Um, there have been studies uh, about couples who are asked to cuddle for longer after having sex and it's found that they have more sex because of it. Not immediately after, but you know, <laughs> over the course of a week or however long it takes people to have sex. So sometimes, yes, we are moved to do the right thing or we are moved to do an action in any case. Sometimes doing the action moves us. I have found that to be the case with the steps that I have been taking, or trying to take, that um, you know, if I am contemplating a winter vacation, okay, every winter vacation for as long as I can remember, we've flown somewhere. I've taken my kids to go see something great. I don't feel particularly moved to take a train somewhere. I don't feel particularly moved to not take that rare opportunity in the year to go have our perspectives ex expanded. 
Um, but I know that when we make that decision, it's going to feel a certain way. And I know that um, not only will we be perfectly able to take every bit as good a vacation, but it will be, um, have an added layer of meaning because of the conversation that we'll have. We'll feel good about it in a way that might have a narcissistic component, but I don't, I don't think is fundamentally narcissistic. I think that um, it feels good to close the distance between who you are and who you want to be. You know, we all have a sense of who we, how we want to respond to the climate crisis, even if we can't quite put it into words, even if we don't have a plan. We know that we're not doing the thing that we want to do. I think, or I do. I have had, over the last few years, a kind of low-level alienation from myself, maybe even something like a low-level depression about it, witnessing myself not participating. I, I can put into words how that's felt for me. So when I was a, a boy, two separate nine-month periods, I was a vegetarian, once because I saw a pig being slaughtered and once because I saw fish being starved to death on a Brittany beach and gave up in the end because I liked eating meat so much. Then when I was an adult, I became a vegetarian again for seven weeks. And the reason I became a vegetarian this time was because I felt that I couldn't say my prayers at night, that even though I was no longer a Christian, I still used as a mechanism to get into some sort of deeper spiritual realm occasionally. I couldn't say my prayers at night because I knew that I was going to do something that I thought was wrong the next day in the form of eating meat. So I would hope not to get angry with someone, but I knew that I would continue to eat meat. And I thought, how can I pray to God and pray to become a better person if I know that I'm going to do something I fundamentally disagree with. So I became a vegetarian until, again, I lapsed. And you're absolutely right. I think it's closing that gap between what we know we should do and what we actually do. Before we leave sex behind Can I completely, ask you one question? Yes, go on. Yeah. When you, when you, in those periods when you were a vegetarian, I understand that it wasn't sustainable for whatever reason. I've had a problem with sustaining my choices. It's difficult. In my experience, it's not really an event or a choice. It's like a process over time. And I bounce back and forth, and I wrestle with it, and I fail, and I try to do a little better. In those periods when you were, did you feel like any relief at all? Did it feel good, or did it not make any difference in your life? It was a long time ago, but it kind of felt exhausting and mm. frustrating, and I wanted to be eating meat every single day that I wasn't eating it. <laughs> and, and there was no aspect of it that felt like um, I'm doing... The person who is, I don't know how you pray, if you do like this on your knees or what, mm. but there's something inside of you that is... Not, um, not perfectly secular, not indifferent to the notion of like morality or ethics or a higher calling. But there's right? no doubt that in the seven-week period as an adult, I felt better about myself. I think that's what I was asking about Sorry, as, yeah. a, as an adult. So why do you think you felt better? Because I felt more at one with who I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. This is getting very deep, isn't it? No, <laughs> I, I think what you just said perfectly describes my relationship to this, more at one with who I wanted to be. It's like absolutely that simple. I do want to get back to sex because yeah. there's a very, very good bit in the book where you say that... You mean talking about it, right? Yeah, talking okay. about it. Yeah, we'll do the other bit later. <laughs> we can cuddle afterwards. <laughs> but in the book, you talk about a couple where someone has an affair and the marriage counsel will say, okay, you say goodbye to your first marriage now. And do you want to enter a second marriage? And use that as an analogy for our relationship with the planet. That if we're going to save the planet, we're going to have to have an entirely different relationship with it, or we're going to have to go into another marriage or another relationship, and as Stephen Hawking thought, go and live on another planet. To what extent do you think there is a, a realistic possibility that we will end up 
leaving Earth, or some of us, in order to continue as a species. I have no idea. That's sort of above my pay grade, and it doesn't seem like something I would want to bank on. It feels like an escape route that is planned by people who are unwilling to change, who are unwilling to do work. Like, we have this perfectly good Earth. We're going to destroy it, so let's go to one where there's no oxygen, where we have... You want to talk about climate problems, you know, try to exist on Mars. Um, we will have to reinvent our relationship to the Earth, the, the Earth that we have betrayed, you know. Perhaps unknowingly, for most of us, you know, perhaps not believing that there was an alternative or that we had any role in it, not recognizing our own power to heal that relationship, but we have betrayed the planet, and if we're going to stay here, we're going to have to have an entirely different kind of relationship to it. You know, people sometimes extrapolate that notion to, we'll have to un, you know, undo capitalism, which doesn't make sense to me, but we do have to undo a kind of unbridled consumerism, an idea that we can have whatever we want, whenever we want it, in whatever quantity that we want. And that just can't be true moving forward. And food is the, a, a wonderful example. People will often say, yes, but um, the problem isn't really meat. The problem is industrial farming, which is sort of true, um, but also, also untrue, because we have seven going on eight billion people with this enormous appetite for meat. And there is no alternative with that many people with this appetite. The amount of animal products that we consume now in the year 2019 is the equivalent of every person alive on the planet in the year 1700 eating 950 pounds of meat and drinking 1,200 gallons of milk every single day. So some and there of, are we eat 60 billion chickens a year, is that roughly right? It sounds Something right, but honestly, I don't remember the number. But um, that sounds about, yeah, that sounds about right. There are 50 billion farmed animals on the planet at any given moment. So that, I think, and almost all of them are chickens. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Could we just take a moment to pause from climate change specifically? And could you remind those of us in the room who have read the book Eating Animals and tell for the first time people such as myself who haven't yet read it why we shouldn't eat animals for animals' sake. For the sake of animals? Yes. Oh, don't listen to me. Just try to go to a factory farm and see for yourself. And you can decide for yourselves. What I will tell you is you won't be able to go to a factory farm 
because they have a level of secrecy that is paramount to like a military installation. Any other kind of food that you want to know about, where it comes from, how it's raised, you will probably have success in being able to get behind the counter and watch the production. With meat, it's very different. So there's a problem, which is that most of us, when we think of farmers, think about human beings, first of all. We think about grass, we think about sunshine, we think about fences, animals walking around, and we respect that image. And I think we have good reasons to respect that image. Farmers have historically been respectable people whose interest is not to torture animals and whose interest is not to destroy the environment. The problem is in the last 50 years, the uh, industrialized animal agriculture has completely dominated the marketplace. In America, 99.9% of the animals that are eaten come from factory farms. The number is, is less here, but it's around 90%. So if that's a distinction that makes a difference to you, great. If not, not. We have too many people with too great an appetite, so we're raising animals in ways that remove farmers and remove nature. In America, there are um, fewer farmers now. I don't mean per capita. I mean as an absolute number. Fewer farmers now than we had during the Civil War, despite the fact that the population has increased 11 times. Around the Civil War, about 70% of Americans were somehow involved in agriculture. Now it's 1.5%. Um, and there's a similar story in England and in Europe. So I would invite you to try to go on a factory farm and just see for yourself and see if it aligns with your values or and, not. And how many vegetarians are there already actually in the room, if you put your hands up? Quite a lot. And how many vegans? Far fewer, interestingly. And of the vegetarians amongst you, are you vegetarian for the sake of the animals or are you primarily vegetarian for the sake of the planet? Put your hands up. Sorry. It's not very well done. Put your... <laughs> I wasn't asking you to start talking quite yet. Put your hands up if you're a vegetarian for the sake of the animals and for the planet. It's a little bit like asking, do you not punch yourself in the face because you don't like bruises or because it feels bad? <laughs> you know, like, the, the, the reason I ask it, and how dare you criticize my interview techniques. <laughs> the reason I ask it is because I have a very, a very strong sense from hosting my shows and from what you read in the papers that people are now turning to vegetarianism slash veganism for different reasons. And there are more and more people because they are understanding that this is a planetary issue as well as an animal welfare issue. Completely right. Someone just sent me a study that said that, which is, blew my mind, but that... Um, meat consumption in Europe has reduced by 20% in the last three months. Maybe that's a fluke, the last three months. I don't think it's a fluke. At least, I haven't been living in Europe in the last three months. In America, the news coverage about the connection between meat and climate has increased literally a hundredfold in the last three months. It's like come out of the blue. When I started to write this book, I couldn't find an article about it in any mainstream American newspaper or magazine that said what the environmental, the climate effects were of animal agriculture. Now it is, if not every single day in the New York Times, every other day. Yesterday, there was an article that said the Amazon is burning, beef is to blame. Two days ago, three days ago, four days ago, there's articles about the um, triumph of the Beyond Burger. And um, there is a movement in America, like a wave that's been going on for... Oh, a decade and is cresting now. You know, on American college campuses, there are more vegetarians than Catholics. 
I'm not talking about in, uh, in Berkeley, California, on American college campuses. They're more vegetarians than any major of study, psychology, economics, English. It used to be the case, when I, probably when I wrote Eating Animals, it was the case that they were more vegetarians than would admit to it. Today, many more people admit to it than are vegetarian because <laughs> it's just an aspirational identity. It used to be, the question used to be, like, we can all remember this. A couple years ago, the question was, why, why don't you eat meat? We are so very close to the moment when the question is, why do you eat meat? We are so very close to the moment when, in a restaurant, they will say, here are the specials tonight, and here's the meat option. Um, we're going to have, like, it's not the case that we're going to live in a vegetarian or vegan world, or I don't see that happening soon. Maybe it will happen. But I think very soon we're going to live in a world where the default is reversed. And when enough of your friends start telling you that they're vegetarian and vegan, it, it does begin to make it feel more and more uncomfortable. And there are very subtle changes. Cass Sunstein, who I interviewed for, for How To Academy as well, talks all about how change happens through nudge. But if, in Soho House, which is a, a, a media members group in London, now has on its menu in one of its houses, at the heart of the menu, right where your eye alights first, the vegetarian options. Things like that actually can have disproportionately enormous events. I want to ask you about, given that we just touched on the personal, the way that you weave those personal stories into the book, because they're deeply moving, and they've obviously had a very profound impact on you and the way that you've told this story. So would you just remind us, for those who don't know, how your grandmother escaped and the lengths to which she went. And it was a male relative. I can't remember whether it was your grandfather who wanted to hand himself into the Nazis when he heard the extent of the loss of some of his own relatives, but he didn't, and he was grabbed by someone and forced to leave and then used incredible ingenuity to escape and then eventually go to America. And without all those incredible things, you wouldn't actually be here today talking to us about saving the world moving forward. Yeah, so... Um you know, when I wrote this book, as I said, it wasn't, I wasn't really writing it as a journalist. I certainly wasn't writing it as any kind of scientist. I was writing it as an individual who was wrestling with just how to be in this moment. And um, it happened to be the year that my grandmother passed away. She passed away right around the time when I finished the book. So if I had been writing a different kind of book, there would have been no place for her in that book. But because of the nature of the book, which was very open and... Um, I didn't want to pretend that the things that were influencing my life weren't influencing my intellectual life or my ethical life. I decided to include her. And she has always been a kind of north star when I navigate difficult issues. She's a, just a wonderful, wonderful person. Very strong, very resilient, and um, was willing to make herself vulnerable as well and discuss you know, her own contradictions or her own confusions. So she was born and raised in Poland, in what is now the Ukraine, but was then Poland. And um, when she was about 18, the Nazis were approaching her shtetl, her village, and um, she decided that she would flee and ended up literally walking east to Russia. She ended up walking about 3,000 miles and um, all of her family remained. Her parents, her grandparents, her aunts, her uncles, her sister, her friends, her cousins. And, whenever, and that is the foundational story of my family. 
Your grandmother left and everybody else was murdered. She survived and that's, how, that's why we exist rather than don't exist. And when we would ask her why she made that decision, um, she had a very hard time explaining it. She would just say, I felt I had to do something. You know, she didn't think she was any smarter than anybody else. She didn't think she was any braver than anybody else. She didn't think she was any um, less afraid of dying than anybody else. It is a kind of mystery. And it's a mystery why some of us respond to what we know and some of us don't. And it's a mystery to me why I sometimes respond to things I know and sometimes don't. And you want to travel back in time and shout at those people who didn't leave and say, for God's sake, leave and do something, which is a metaphor for what you're doing now through your writing and trying to convince us to do something. I'm really not trying to convince other people. I was trying to convince myself. But in the process, realistically and honestly, you are, and that's, I hope, what's happening this evening. Well, this evening, sure, the book is out. But when I was writing the book, I was really trying to shake my own shoulders and say, what are you doing? Or what are you not doing, really? You know, how can you know what you know and, and live like this? So there's that contrast between if it was a desperation on the part of your grandmother to escape and the fact that she did and the fact that we don't yet seem quite desperate enough. But also, and this is, also, this is rooted in those awful years as well, you say in the book that in the Warsaw Ghetto, 35,000 pieces of paper were buried in the soil to tell the world of that story. There's a very poignant moment when a Jew does escape and comes to talk to a prominent Jew in London and tries to convince him that Jews are being murdered in extraordinary numbers and it's not believed. We don't need to bury those bits of paper. If we screw the planet up, we have documented every single step towards our own self-destruction, haven't we? Yeah, has anybody seen the memorial that was made for the um, uh, glacier in Iceland that cleaved recently? Um, you should just go home and Google it. It will be better than what I tell you right now. It's, I think it's the first time that I ever, and the only time, actually, that I've ever cried in response to climate change. Um, it was a memorial that was established, and it's extremely simple. It's probably the size of my book, more or less. Um, just a bronze plaque. Um, the upshot of which, and I say you should Google it because it's worded absolutely perfectly and my memory won't do it justice, but the upshot of which is we knew and let this document the fact that we knew. And suicide plays the role in this book. Not only did one of your ancestors, I think maybe your grandfather, kill himself at the age of 44 having escaped the Nazis, but you talk about the risk of collective suicide in the context of climate change. I want to finish just by asking you two things and then it's your turn to ask questions. One... Tell us why you start the book by reminding us that we're all inhaling the dying breaths of Elvis and Hitler and Christ and everybody else. Well, I, I, I begin with a kind of memory of um, when I was a kid, this book that I would carry around with me called The Book of Endings. Or I thought it was called The Book of Endings. And um, it was just a great, great book. And it just detailed the various ways that things can end, whether... It was, you know, man-made obsolescence for technologies or um, species that have gone extinct. And there was a whole chapter on the endings of famous people, you know, like how I remember Houdini died, how Isidore Duncan died, um, Napoleon's last days. And one of the things that it mentioned was that every time we inhale, we are inhaling molecules of Caesar's final breath, A2 Brute. And... I just remember it really struck me as a kid. It strikes me as an adult. Um, 
how remarkable that was, that you can't get out of the way of literally inhaling the entirety of human history every time you breathe, and you can't get out of the way of perpetuating that, you know? And it, was a, it sort of offered a kind of perspective that I hadn't had before of my um, just sort of position in, in the web. And for me, just as it looks backwards, it also implies that we're looking forwards and that what we do can have possibly a butterfly effect on the future of humankind. So just finally, another very famous Jonathan. Except Phil. it's not a butterfly effect. A butterfly effect is chaotic, and it's something we can't anticipate, and that's well, what makes it exciting to yeah. people. We know exactly what we're doing yeah. right now. We know that if we do less of certain things, we will experience less of a certain kind of loss. And it really is important to make that distinction. Yeah. I just meant in terms of scale and the fact that little things that we do can incrementally make a, an impact. Final question, a, a famous, another famous Jonathan, Jonathan Franzen wrote a piece quite recently which is rather doom and gloom about the prospects of us doing enough, quickly enough to save the planet. You, you don't think we are doomed, although lots of people at the beginning did think that we were. Is there a responsibility for people in public life if they do feel as bleak as Jonathan Franzen seems to feel not to express that publicly, or, or is that censorship? Is it a censorship that we should self-impose? No, not at all. I mean, any, I, there's a huge difference between saying, I feel doomed, and saying, we are doomed. Um, the first thing is a perfectly legitimate position to take. The second just isn't in keeping with science. And I think there's a responsibility to be in keeping with science. You know, I've published in The New Yorker. His essay was in The New Yorker. The New Yorker is scrupulous mm. about fact-checking in ways that are like, neurotic to the point of being really funny. Um, but we, we are not doomed. That's not in keeping with science any more than saying we're going to be fine is in keeping with science. You won't meet a climate scientist who says we're doomed. You'll meet plenty of climate scientists who say a certain amount of loss is already baked in and unavoidable and has been determined. And the great majority of loss has not yet been determined but will be determined by our actions. We meet a lot of climate scientists who would say it seems extremely unlikely that we're going to do what's necessary. Um, I think the latest modeling says we have a 5% chance of meeting the goals of the Paris Climate Accords. Um, you know, the United States is no longer a signatory, but the UK is not going to meet the goals of the Paris Climate Accords. There's not a country in Europe that's going to meet the goals of the Paris Climate Accords. There are two countries in the world that are on pace to meet the goals of the Climate Accords. Do you want to guess what they are? No. Um, Morocco and Gambia. Morocco and Gambia. Gambia. Those are the only two countries in the world. So, um, you know, I campaigned for Hillary. I wanted Hillary to win very desperately. I was despondent. I'm probably still despondent about the outcome of that election. But if she'd been the, our president, we would for sure have our name on the right page of the right document, and we would for sure not meet the goals of the Paris Climate Accords which comes back to the distinction between feeling and doing and the need to make sure we're not complacent by saying the right things. Um, which reminds me that you say in the book the vanity of the Democrats in blaming the Republicans has become far too easy for the Democrats to blame the Republicans, but Obama had a Democratic Congress for his first two years and didn't do enough. And it also reminds me that we haven't used the words Donald and Trump so far, so there are lots of things for you to ask about, including technological solutions, if there are any, and if that's the way forward, lots of other things. So please put your hand up and ask whatever you want. There's a lady up at the front, yeah. Um, when the government got advice from the NHS and health experts that 
um, sugar was helping the obesity crisis and was a really big problem. Um, the government imposed a sugar tax on drinks. I was wondering what you think about the idea of a meat tax, since we've got so much advice from the experts that it's causing a huge part of the climate catastrophe. Yes, so the role of top-down via a meat tax. Well, I think that meat should just cost what it costs. You know, Let's put aside the notion of taxing it and instead think about removing subsidies from it because it's a, a radically artificially deflated price. Um, when you buy a $1 or two one pound or two pound hamburger at Burger King, it's not like that's what it costs. That's just what you pay at the cash register because of the subsidies and because there's no environmental regulation. Um, Smithfield is, um, if not the largest, then the second largest meat provider in the United States. They had in one year 8,600 violations of the Clean Water Act. If they'd had 20, you would say, oh, that's not so good. If they'd had 100, you would say, someone should keep a more vigilant eye on this company. 8,600 is a business model. Now, they're doing it on purpose, and it's a great business. If by great business you mean simply making profit, if a government is not regulating you and you can get away with any kind of destruction that you feel like, then you can have an enormously profitable business. So if we could begin just by removing unfair subsidies, which, are, which disadvantage small and family farmers, the kinds of farmers that we respect, care about, and want to succeed, and disadvantage the producers of healthy food and environmentally sustainable food, and also hold these corporations responsible for their environmental destruction, then we would find that the price of meat will begin to resemble what the actual cost is, which will make it something that people eat as a delicacy, or people eat much, much more rarely, and it'll be the kind of nudge that Cass Sunstein is talking about. It's not taking food away from people. It's not limiting your choices. It's bringing into proportion into proper proportion um, what foods ought to cost. And by so doing, we'll make it really easy for us to make better choices. That doesn't necessarily bring it into proportion with the damage it does to the environment, though, does it? Well, taking away subsidies doesn't necessarily... No, I'm saying, and also, you know, in regulate them environmentally. So maybe a carbon... You could call it a carbon tax, or you could call it... Um, there would be stages of it, you know, yeah. because it could be in cleanup of waterways, um, having some regulating the amount of air pollution that they are entitled to create. But I would also be entirely, entirely in favor of a carbon tax. More questions? Yes, you, please. What do you like about the Greta story? What do you like about the Greta story? You didn't think it's a perfect story, but you, you like it. Well, I think it's a nearly perfect story, actually. I think she's an amazing spokesperson and is probably the most important person on earth right now. You know, she's raised the consciousness of hundreds of millions of people and has, I think, revealed um, what has always been inside of us. You know, I think she's been successful not because she's convincing us of something, but reminding us of something. So, um, would she have happened without her? Was she inevitable? Was she inevitable? What do you mean? As in, if it hadn't been for Greta Thunberg, would there have been someone else that we would have found? Or I don't, do, do you think it's because I don't know of her would... uniqueness that she is who she's become and, and is having the effect that she's having? Well, there is no other her, you know, so that in a way suggests an answer. Um, but I think if there wasn't a Rosa Parks, there was another Rosa Parks. We just didn't hear about her until you wrote about her in the book. Well, Rosa Parks um, is iconic because of an action that she took. 
And I think that Greta is powerful because of her um, ability to communicate, her sort of singular ability to communicate in a way that really reaches us. So um, unfortunately, too much weight is being put on her shoulders, and there's a risk of us feeling complacent, us feeling that loving her is doing something, you know, or that applauding when she speaks is doing something. Um, what I would hope is that she motivates us to change our behaviors. You know, Greta Thunberg is a vegan. Al Gore is a vegan. Um, environmental groups haven't historically talked about meat very much. On this, as I've been like, speaking about the book around the United States, I'm often paired with a climate scientist on stage. I have not been paired with a single climate scientist who is a meat eater. Every single one has been a vegetarian. And I say to them, like, why don't you talk about it? And they say, I don't know. It's like, I don't drive an SUV. I don't eat meat. It's like, goes without saying. It's obvious. I had no idea. I had absolutely no idea. I thought that... You keep looking at me, and I th feel like you are shaming me. <laughs> no, listen. I'm not, in, I'm not into shame. It's, uh, it was a huge surprise to me. And, like, I found it actually quite inspiring. And I wish that that would just get out there more. I wish that were a larger part of the conversation been a really, really great interview. Thank you so much. So I actually am a former climate scientist, and now I came to the LSE to study behavioral science because policy wasn't moving fast enough and wanting to look at it from the consumer perspective. So I'm encouraged that you think we're at a tipping point where defaults will change. It's exactly what I'm studying in my doctoral research. But I wonder what gives you hope you, you brought up, for instance, Berkeley. My son went to Berkeley. He worked at a plant forward um, university campus, um, Cafe 3. It was their dining hall, right? They went back. So, so how, how is it they went back to serving meat just last year? So what, what is it that makes you think that this behavior change will be sustained to the point where norms are shift? Because until we shift behavioral norms, um, things can just go back the other way. I could be wrong. You know, I, I, don't think it, I don't think it will be linear, and I don't think it will be without a lot of flip-flopping, and I can just look at myself as a kind of model. Like, I have not had a linear progression toward that kind of closing up the distance that you were talking about um, between myself and myself. I've had a lot of inconsistencies. I've had periods when I seem to completely forget what it was that I cared about. And it's a process, it's not an event. And I think this will be exactly the same way. We're not gonna wake up one morning and realize that we solved a problem. We're gonna make forward steps, we're gonna make backward steps, we're gonna make forward steps. But um, when was the last time you talked to somebody who has kids under 20, who has more than one kid, where one of them wasn't a vegetarian? I just can't even remember the last time I met such a person. Or at the very least, even putting aside vegetarianism, just consciousness about meat-eating and a kind of desire to eat less. I think that we're a huge shift that's happened recently um, is away from the binary of vegetarian, not vegetarian, toward this recognition that um, we meat-eaters want to eat less meat and that they're willing to risk accusations of hypocrisy in the interest of doing the thing that feels right to them. In America, 90% of people who buy Beyond Burgers in supermarkets are meat eaters. They're not vegetarians. 
when um, KFC in the United States tried out as a pilot program this plant-based fried chicken thing in Atlanta. Um, they had photos on the front page of the New York Times of people around the block to buy it. And I saw that and I thought, okay, it's a bunch of vegetarians. It doesn't necessarily excite me that much. But what it did excite me were two things. One, KFC painted the restaurant green that day. So they weren't just like offering a substitute food for this annoying contingent who they might be able to milk a little bit of money out of and get to shut up. They were like really proudly offering this thing. They were announcing it and announcing the connection to the environment. And their public statement that day was, we don't think of this as a food for vegetarians. We think of it as a food for meat eaters who want to eat less meat. The way that plant-based meats have been, um, and by the way, it's not necessarily the thing that I'm most excited about in the world, but the way that they have been rolled out in America has really surprised me, really shocked me. Like Burger King doesn't call it a veggie burger. They call it an impossible Whopper, right? Do you, do you even call it a Whopper here? Yeah. Okay. So they're like lending the brand name, this thing that people care about and believe in and go to Burger King to buy to this um, plant-based substitute. And it's in America, it's just not being like made fun of and people aren't saying like, ooh, gross. People are just open to it in a way that I wouldn't honestly have anticipated. So I think the combination of um, people over the age of 20 who are meat eaters who want to eat less meat and the kind of radical ascent of vegetarianism on college and high school campuses is a reason to feel a lot of hope, both because of that behavioral change and because of the way that that behavioral change is going to inspire a cultural change. Because those 20-year-olds are going to be the interviewers, the novelists, and the people asking questions in just a couple of years. Time for one more question at the front, but very briefly question, please. Yeah, no statements. Sorry, I didn't quite hear what you said. Um, I noticed in your book that you inform and do not like... Oh, inform and do not judge. Um, I judge myself quite often in the book. I mean, I'm really tough on myself, I think, in the book. And I found that really difficult and embarrassing. There are a lot of things that I wrote about in the book, um, like my own inconsistencies, that I wrote and then I erased, and then I wrote again and then I erased. And I had to really consider whether I was willing to share them or not because they made me very available to very reasonable accusations of hypocrisy. And I was ashamed. Like, I'm ashamed of, it's shameful. It feels shameful to, to not act on what you know, especially if you're telling other people to act on, or suggesting other people should act on what they know. Um, so, you know, I hope you haven't felt judged at all tonight. You, you, you no, but I do actually think that being judged a bit, whether intentionally or not, and it doesn't matter whether you intended to judge me, as you say, what matters is that we change. And, I, and it's another step, I hope, towards me starting to do more in my own life. But I, I just want to finally ask you this. There's a big question about any society, about whether it is ever, a, whether it is ever okay to break the law. You think, for example, of apartheid South Africa, you kind of think, yeah, that was okay to break the law. How far do you think extinction rebellion? How far would extinction rebellion have to go in the ways in which they break the law for you not to support them? So, rather than answer that question, I'll ask you a question. <laughs> you asked me some personal questions. Let's ask you some personal questions. Maybe because they reflected well on you. You're a smart guy, obviously. 
right? You're a thoughtful person, and you're not somebody who, it strikes me, is out to um, get a laugh or make a buck or push forward at any cost. You're somebody who admits to praying, right? You've also suggested that you don't do that much vis-a-vis the environment. Is that right? So what would it take for you to make small changes in your life? And like, what changes can you imagine making? Realistically, I'm not, you know that I'm not um, interested in like demeaning whatever you say right now because... Um, my, my biggest problem is believing, which is such a powerful word that you use. Intellectually, I get it, of course, because otherwise I'd be a climate change denier. My biggest problem is believing that it is a as bad as it is or a or that it is as bad as I understand it to be and then that my changes that I could make will will actually make any sort of difference at all but everything that I'm reading listening to you watching the example of people here who are already vegetarians and vegans knowing that I think I should be means that I will commit at the very least to eat significantly less meat for the rest of this year. I already drive deliberately and significantly less. And I hope, switching it from you to me to you guys... I know we have at least another two minutes. Just to, like, just to gently push on that. Significantly less means significantly what would, nothing. What would you like right? me to commit to? I, I, I'm just... I am, I am, I'm honestly... I, I like you. I've liked talking to you. I am genuinely curious. Okay, I will what commit. I will commit now, feeling sweatier and sweatier. <laughs> <laughs> I will not eat any more beef between now and the first of January. How's that? I think that's awesome. That's good. And given that we've been personal, I know I can do that because in a desperate attempt to save my own marriage. I gave up bread and sugar for the first half of this year. It didn't work, but I did it. So I know that I, I, I know that for the sake of the planet, I'll be able to do at least that. And, and I would like to thank you for making change happen, in the, in the words of Cass Sunstein, and for committing your own talents to the single most important issue that is going on in the world at the moment. And I hope that collectively we can all do our bit and spread the word. And I hope that you, I think you've already got copies of your book, but I hope you'll get them signed from Jonathan in just a moment. But for now, please join me in thanking Jonathan Safran for very much. This week's podcast starred Jonathan Safran Foa and was presented by Matthew Stadlin. Jonathan's new book, We Are the Weather, is out now. And Matthew also has a new book to help you appreciate the beauty and wonder of the natural world and inspire you to save it. It's called How to See Birds. The podcast was produced by me, Vas Christodoulou, and our editor is John Doughty. Please rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And visit us at howtoacademy.com for films, interviews and of course live events starring some of the biggest names in global culture. Thanks for listening. <laughs>